Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, last night I asked my seventh grader, I said, hey, have you ever heard of Melchizedek? Do you know what this guy is all about? And she looked at me, she's like, I think I've heard of him before. Uh, But, you know, she didn't know. And many of us, we have no idea who this Melchizedek figure is. The author of Hebrews brought him up in chapter 5, verse 10. His whole desire was to talk about Jesus and his high priestly ministry. And to do that, he needed to connect him to this figure named Melchizedek. He hit pause, though, for a moment before talking about Melchizedek so that he could correct his hearers in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. He needed to tell them, don't go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, but keep moving forward in Jesus. And none of us here this morning or none of us here the last few weeks have been tempted to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system more than likely, but we are quite often tempted to turn away from the Lord, to look to other things, and so we received it as an exhortation to keep pressing on with Jesus, to keep pressing on in and with Christ, to turn to him and to him alone. But now here in this chapter, he finally gets back to this figure, this man named Melchizedek. Now he is, in the Bible, a mysterious figure who is not spoken of all that often. I mean, last week we looked at Abraham. We read of him again here in this text. This morning, Abraham is all over the pages of Scripture. Guys like David, all over the pages of Scripture. But Melchizedek is only mentioned here in the book of Hebrews, and twice in some small and obscure passages in the Old Testament. And where he shows up is interesting. He shows up during the life of Abraham. Abraham had received the promise of God upon his life, and he was carrying out just his walk with God. He had a nephew younger than him. His name was Lot. And one day, Lot was captured by foreign powers. Word came of this capture to Abraham. And when he heard about it, He prayed to God, and in faith, he took his household servants, and he went and attacked these foreign kings that had captured his nephew. And God gave him a miraculous and incredible victory. I mean, the odds were so against him, yet he won this victory and saved Lot's life, along with lots of spoil. And when he came back from the battle, different kings came out to meet him, the king of Sodom, but also this figure called the king of of Salem, whose name was Melchizedek. And I want to read to you the three verses in Genesis chapter 14 that detail their meeting after that battle. This is what it says in Genesis 14, verse 18. This is all we have about Melchizedek, plus one little verse in the Psalms. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham 
and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's the whole mention of this guy Melchizedek until years later in Psalm 110. There's one other little mention of this man until we get here to Hebrews chapter 5 and 7 and beyond. You see, what the author needs to do is he needs to answer a question that nobody here in this room has probably asked, but that Jewish Christians would have asked. If he's preaching that Jesus is our great high priest, they would have wondered, how can he be our great high priest since he came from the tribe of Judah as a descendant of Judah and David and not from the tribe of Levi as a descendant of Aaron? You see, the priests, the high priests, were descended from Aaron who was in the tribe of Levi. And so what the author wants to do is say, look, there was another priest. He just showed up for three verses. He was the priest of the God Most High. He came out with bread and wine. He poured out blessing upon Abraham, and Abraham gave to him a tenth of all, a tithe of all his possessions, just like we, speaking to the Hebrews, give a tithe of our possessions to the Levitical priesthood. Abraham gave a tithe of his possessions to the Melchizedekian priesthood, so to speak. And so what the author is trying to do is say Jesus is not a high priest through Levi and Aaron, but through this figure named Melchizedek. And he actually compares Melchizedek with Jesus. Did you see that there in verse 3? He says he resembles the Son of God as he continues a priest forever. I mean, look at the description in verse 3. Melchizedek was without father or mother or genealogy. You know, Jesus, of course, had an earthly mother and an adoptive father, but in a sense, he's without father or mother. He just always is, always was. He says of Melchizedek in verse 3, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? I mean, he stepped into our time and space through the incarnation, but the Bible teaches that he always was, that there has never been a point where Jesus has not existed. And of course, there is no end to his life. And also in verse 3, he says, he is a priest forever. Now, you should know that some people like to debate about Melchizedek's identity. Some people think that Melchizedek was actually what is called a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, a Christophany, if you will. Someone who Jesus embodied in the Old Testament era before the full incarnation in the New Testament era where he became a baby and dwelt among us with a full and lengthy human life. Some people think, though, that he was merely a mysterious man, this Melchizedek, who was on the biblical scene for just a brief moment. So I'll let you guys fight about it in life group. My opinion, it depends on the day. Uh, Sometimes I think he's just a mysterious figure from the Old Testament, but I think most days I think Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate version of Jesus Christ, which I think from other passages is clear happened from time to time in that Old Testament era. But either way, Melchizedek is the priesthood that Jesus Christ is connected to. Now here's what I want you to see first about what makes Jesus 
such an incredible and better priest than anything that the Levitical priesthood could ever have offered. Look at, in verse 3 with me, the title for Melchizedek. It says his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness, and his title, king of Salem, means king of peace. You see, Melchizedek, just like Jesus, is more than just a priest, he is also a king. The Levitical priests could never in Israel serve as king. They were not in the right line, the the right ancestry. The kings came from the Davidic line once that was established. So the priests could never serve as kings, and the kings also, by the way, could never serve as priests. There was one king who tried it. His name was Uzziah. Generally, he was a good king. And one day he thought, I think I could also be a priest. And so he went in to try to offer sacrifices and God gave him temporary leprosy to, or actually it was a permanent leprosy to freak him out and to freak everybody else out from trying to take a position that was not theirs. But when Jesus comes along, he is not only priest or only king, but he is both. That's what I want you to see, number one, about Jesus. He is the best priest because, number one, Jesus is a king priest. There it is up there on the screen for you. Jesus is a king priest. Now, as priest, Jesus is concerned with humanity's relationship with God. As priest, Jesus is concerned with humanity's sin and wanting to remedy our broken relationship with the living God. But as king, Jesus is concerned with building a kingdom, with governing justly and rightly, with bringing in righteousness, and and not just righteousness, but an everlasting righteousness here on earth. This is beautiful because what it helps us understand about Jesus is that he is concerned about both. You see, if you have a Christianity that is concerned only about the problem of sin and people's relationship with the living God, but you don't care about God's kingdom or the expansion of God's kingdom or the establishment of his everlasting righteousness and goodness here on earth, then you'll be a person who, though you'll preach the gospel for the saving of souls from sin, you will not be of any great benefit to humanity here on earth. But if you have a Christianity where you're only concerned with the here and now and the expansion of God's kingdom by doing good and being just, but you don't think that people need to hear the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you also have a partial gospel, a partial Christianity. Jesus, though, comes as the king and as the priest together because he is concerned with both. So that's the first thing I wanted you to see about Jesus that makes him an amazing high priest for us. All right, let's continue reading in Hebrews chapter 7 and go from verse 4 all the way through verse 9. You guys with me this morning? Let's read these next verses. It says, see how great this man was. This is the one exhortation of the whole chapter, actually. There's nothing else we're told to do. The one thing we're told to do is see how great Melchizedek was so we can compare him to Jesus. It says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those, who de- those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, 
who does not have his descent from them, from the Levites, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, Abraham, who had the promises. Abraham was walking around with all these promises from God, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. It is, verse 7, beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who, was, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now here, what the author is going to do, or, or does, is he explains the greatness of this figure, Melchizedek. And he really does it in two ways. I'll do the second one first. The, the, the thing that he said is that, in a sense, it's like the Levitical priests paid tithes to Melchizedek. You see, they, when they were around, the Levitical priests, they received tithes. They received a tenth of what the people made and earned and all of that, they brought it to the Levitical priests, or at least that's what was commanded to them by the law of God. And as they did that, they were receiving because God had told them to receive. But before they were a thing, uh, Abraham was alone by himself. Abraham had to eventually have Isaac, who eventually had to have Jacob, who eventually had to have 12 sons, one of them being Levi, and the Levites had to turn into a tribe, and that people group had to turn into millions of people. Then they had to go out of their slavery in Egypt before Moses came along and established from God the Levitical priesthood. So what the author says is part of the reason that Melchizedek is greater is because it's like the Levitical priests gave tithes to Melchizedek because they were still technically, so to speak, in the body of Abraham who gave tithes to Melchizedek. You guys with me? Just nod your head because I'll just keep explaining it over and over again. Like, yeah, okay, we got it. The other thing that makes him great, though, is not just that he's greater than the Levitical priesthood, but notice there, he also says in verse 7 that it's beyond dispute that the lesser or the inferior is blessed by the superior. And when Abraham went to Melchizedek, he gave a tithe, but who did the blessing? It was Melchizedek. He pronounced a blessing upon Abraham. So what he's drawing out is this figure is even greater, not just than the Levitical priesthood, but is greater than Abraham himself. And what happened in that whole scene, though, was very simple. Abraham went out to battle. Abraham won a great victory. Abraham took in great spoils. Abraham met Melchizedek. He took one-tenth of his spoils, and he gave it to Melchizedek. And what did Melchizedek do? He blessed Abraham. This is the second thing that I want you to see about the high priestly ministry of Jesus that makes him better than any other. Number two, this is very simple, he is worth giving to. He is worth giving to. You see, Abraham came to try to give to Melchizedek, but Melchizedek gave something else to Abraham. He poured out blessings from God upon his life. And I believe that when Christians give of their lives, their time, their treasure, or their energy to Jesus, there is no way that they will be outgiven by God. 
You see, when you give your life to Christ, He gives it right back to you. In fact, He gives you more than you could ever give to Him. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake and the Gospels, you will actually find it. I'll tell you a story that is a little bit embarrassing to me, but I think proves this kind of point or illustrates this kind of point at least. This last week here at the church, it was Tuesday night, and we had uh, one of our intro to Calvary classes. We do this every two or three months. It's for people that are new in the church who would like to consider, you know, do I really want to make this my home church? They can come out and hear from all the pastors about our testimony a little bit and hear about the vision of the church, the mission of the church. And I do a thing that lasts about 20 or 30 minutes where it's just like a long list of like things that we are and that we aren't to just try to help people make that decision on whether this is going to be the church that God has called them to be a part of, to, to join in and all of that. So we had one of those scheduled for this last Tuesday. I, I didn't know if it was going to be a big one or a little one. You know, they just vary. They go up and down. And they're always generally just a great time. You know, you meet a lot of new people and you're getting to learn a few names and hear some stories of people's lives. And it's just a good connection with people. But I got to tell you, it was Tuesday and just in my heart, I was like, I don't want to go. Okay, I'm just being honest with you. I know that you'd like to think that Pastor Nate wants to go to every single church event in the history of mankind, but there was one that I didn't want to go to, and it was this last Tuesday. And I just kind of felt like, I don't know, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the introvert part of me, and it was just like, man, I I gotta kind of get geared up. I gotta go meet lots of new people, you know? Like, it's cool, but, you know, it's just new people. So I'm like, okay, you know? And I, I prayed about it. I was like, Lord, I know this is not the right attitude to have. So, Lord, I want, I want to go there, and I want to, I want to give you my very best. You know, I want, when I speak, I want to speak with passion. When I'm meeting people, I want to meet people with full engagement. You know, I want, to, I want to love them like you want them to be loved. So just kind of talking to the Lord about that, just letting the Holy Spirit correct my little wayward heart. And, you know, I got there, and, we, you know, we did. We had a great time of meeting all these people and stuff, and, and uh, we did our presentation, and after it's over, we just kind of had this, like, hangout time, and I'm, I'm meeting people, and I'm just hearing these, like, testimonies and stories. Some of them were just such a blessing to me because uh, there have been times where the pastors, we prayed together, and one of the things we prayed is, God, there's certain people in this community we, we just literally cannot reach, but you, by your spirit, you could reach right into their living room. By your Holy Spirit, you could draw them. And there were a few people like that, just like, I don't know what happened, but it was just three or four months ago, the Spirit just convicted me, and I just started coming. And, you know, those were a blessing. But there was this one story in particular. It was this little 19-year-old young woman. She was there all by herself, without her family, who lives in town, but she was there all by herself. And I just, when she said that to me, I just thought, I don't, think when I was 19 years old, I would have been going to an intro to Calvary class all by myself. And she said to me, she said, you know, the the Lord's just been working in my life and I just feel a conviction that it's time for me to step up and make church, make a church my church and to really embrace all of it. I heard there's a baptism next week. I want to get baptized. You know, she just was sharing this whole thing with me and I just walked away and, you know, it was like, just hearing her share, it was like, this is a dream come true. This is exactly what I pray for, what I long for, what I desire. And I just left 
And it was like, it was like the Lord just whispered in my ear, like, you will never outgive me, Nate. You came to this thing thinking you were going to give me some br- great sacrifice, but everything that you heard, everything that you got to receive, it just blessed your life beyond anything that you could have ever done for me. Jesus Christ is worth giving to, is what I'm trying to say. I was talking with my daughters the other day and sharing with them about different pastors here at Calvary and asking them, do you know his story? Do you know his story? And when I got to Pastor Andrew, they said, you know, we really don't know Pastor Andrew's story. And I just shared with them. I said, you know, he started coming to Calvary nine or 10 years ago with his wife, Danielle. And he was just growing in the faith, just a good and godly man, just growing in the faith, learning the word. And God was blessing his business life in the produce industry in Salinas. And we became friends, he and I, over the years and just kind of knew each other. I trusted him, would run ideas off of him and, and eventually became my, our life group leader in our life group and was leading that for a while. And then a moment came where we needed someone with his gifts and his skills to be able to serve as an executive pastor in the church. And God was tugging on his heart and he was tugging on my heart and all the existing pastors and everything just worked out. And he left a very successful career to sacrifice and to come and to serve our church family. And, and uh, you'd have to ask Pastor Andrew if it's been worth it, but that kind of thing, it's like Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth giving your life to. So that's the second thing I wanted you to see. He is worth giving to. All right, verse 11, let's keep reading here in Hebrews chapter 7. It says, now, if perfection, verse 11, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, right? like if people could be made perfect by that, for under it people have received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? In other, he's kind of just saying, like, look, that, that priesthood really couldn't make anybody perfect. That's why a new whole priesthood had to rise up. For then, verse 12, there is a change in the priesthood. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident or clear that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priest. Remember, this was like a big issue that the Jewish Christians would have been asking about. How could Jesus be a priest? Since he didn't come from Levi, he came from the tribe of Judah. So he's answering that question here. He's saying, look, he didn't come from Levi, he came from Melchizedek, but shouldn't the fact that a new priesthood had to be established say something to you about the lack in the old priesthood. It could not, notice again in verse 11, make anyone perfect. Perfection was not attainable from that route, but instead, verse 12, there had to be a change in the law as well. Here's the third great thing that we see about the priesthood of Jesus. Number three, he changed our relationship with the law. He changed our relationship with the law. I don't know if you know this, but if Jesus had not come, then you could read Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and you would have there an accurate description 
of the history of humanity. Because what you read there is that a portion of the population has been given over to such perversion that morality is turned on its head. Another portion of the human population has some kind of morality that they think approves them in the sight of God. And another portion of the population is so embroiled in religion that they think it makes them right with God. And and that would be a description of every human being on the face of the earth. But then God scans, it says there in Romans chapter 3, all of humanity and says, in actuality, though you have these three different groups, there is no one who seeks God. There is none who does good. No, not one. There is none that is righteous. There is none that can be approved in the sight of God according to the law. Here's the law. Here's what you must do to be perfect in my sight. There is none that could be righteous in that way. But because Jesus came, this next line was able to be written. In Romans 3, verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, there is a way for us to be made right with God apart from the keeping of the law. And Jesus is the one who did that. He's the one who changed fundamentally our relationship with the law because he fulfilled it for us and also he refreshed it for us. Now as Christians, we have a new law. It's the law of love. That we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, and that the sum total of God's law is bound up in that concept of love. And not only that, but he helps now you and he helps me to keep that law that he's laid upon our lives. It says in Hebrews, or excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verse 4, that God did what the law could not do so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, as you walk with the Spirit of God, the the things that you could not do previously to keep you from fulfilling the law, now, as a forgiven person who in the sight of God has kept the law, now you can actually do the very thing that you couldn't do before. The Spirit of God enabling you to keep the law. So Jesus has fundamentally changed our relationship with the law. All right, let's keep going in the passage. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 15. Let's read on. It says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement. That's how the Levites or the Levitical priests became priests. It was just a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. You know, they, were, they had the right genealogy. But this new priest comes by the power of an indestructible life. Isn't, isn't, don't you think that's the cooler priesthood? Like you have one priesthood, it's like, how did you become a priest? Well, I was born. And uh, the law said that I had to be one. And then you ask Jesus, how did you become a priest? Well, they tried to kill me, and they did, but then I came back to life because I have an indestructible life. That's the much cooler priesthood is what this guy's trying to say. He says, for it is witnessed, verse 17, of him, and this is him quoting from the second Old Testament passage that talks about Melchizedek, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, 
A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so the author is doing something incredible here. As he looks back on the Old Testament, he first pointed to this story from Abraham and Melchizedek. But as I've been mentioning, there was a long time between the original events, and Psalm 110. I mean, there were the original events. Then Isaac was born, Jacob was born, the 12 sons of Jacob were born. Those 12 sons began to uh, eventually move to Egypt where they multiplied and became the 12 tribes of Israel over 400 years. Then they were set free, free through the Exodus. They wandered in the wilderness. Then they were brought into the land of promise. There were another 400 or so years during the time of the judges. And then eventually the prophets and the kings began to unfold. And David became king. And during David's life, he wrote Psalms, including Psalm 110. And in that psalm, he drew upon Melchizedek from all the way back here, prophesying about a figure who was going to come and be the king who would crush every enemy and put him under his feet. And that king would also, he said in Psalm 110, verse 4, be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And what he announced is that in that priesthood, in comparison to the old priesthood that could make nothing perfect, this is what we have in verse 19. A better hope introduced through which we draw near to God. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see about Jesus. Jesus in his high priestly ministry generates inward hope and upward access. Here's what I mean by that. In the Old Testament era that could make nothing perfect, the law could not actually grow a human being, transform their lives. There was not a lot of hope. You know, you'd fail, you'd go to the tabernacle or the temple, you'd offer your sacrifice, and you'd feel some momentary cleanliness, but as you walked away, there'd be a sinking feeling, I'm going to do it again. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail in that way again. But in this relationship with Jesus, there is a hope inside of us, a better hope of actual transformation. In other words, we don't have to, like verse 18 says, turn to a weak and useless style of personal transformation, but one that is better through which we are actually drawing near or accessing God. Now listen to me for a second. Next week we're going to see what this new covenant looks like, what this better relationship with God looks like, the one where there's actually hope. But my conviction, my, my personal, just as I've talked to Christians over the years, as I've watched different people living out their Christian life, and as I've listened to lots of different pastors and teachers communicate to the body of Christ, it's my personal conviction that a le- very small percentage of believers are drawing on the better hope that they have in Jesus Christ. Because, and here's why I think that, I think that for so many believers, their personal growth and transformation comes down to trying harder, muscling up, gritting their teeth, and just trying to be better than before. And I don't even think that it's a lot of times believers fault for feeling that way because as I've listened and read so many things that Christians preach 
and write about, a lot of times the message is really simple. Be better. So we come to our churches, we gather together, and the message is, hey, yo, be better. And so no wonder we go out on Monday and we're like, okay, what do I do? I guess I just got to be better. And we're trying over and over again in our own power, in our own strength, to grow, to be transformed. But that's not a hopeful message. That's the message that everybody is peddling, regardless of what religion you're in, or even if you have a religion at all. We have that idea, just be better, self-improve, grow, be different, change, transform. You've got it inside of you. You can do it. Be different. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that you must, in this new covenant relationship with Jesus, have as you walk with him his spirit as the one who is the prime mover in your life changing and transforming you as you give your body to him. And as you walk with him, as you enjoy him, he is the one who is doing that changing. And with that, we have a better hope, a better hope. Sometimes in the church, you know, I'll meet a man who, for years, just silently by himself, just tried. I'm just going to try to make myself better. I'm going to try to grow. I'm going to try to improve. There was never any confession. There was not much prayer. There was not much accessing the promises of God and the word of God. There was not much of that. There was not much fellowship, which Christ has given to us to help us and to aid us in our journey in him. There was not much of that. There was just a solitary experience of trying to become something better. But I've met so many men who, after years of frustration, of trying to go it alone, trying to self-improve, eventually fell before the Lord and said, God, you've got to help me. I'm going to take the instruments that you've given, Lord Jesus. Other brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ, your word that you have given, the promises that you've given, I'm going to begin to draw near to you, come to you in prayer to access your power, your might. I'm going to cast my care upon you. I'm going to come into the light. I'm going to receive counsel that you've given to me. And I'm going to trust that you are going to change and transform my life. And I know so many men who, in making a decision like that, watched God unlock a new thing that they could not do for years in their own human self-effort. You see, Jesus, he generates a true and real inward hope and upward access to God. All right, verse 20, let's... Finish out the chapter, verse 20 to 25 is next. It says, And it was not without an oath, this priesthood. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So God, you know, this is solid from God. It's God who swore it. It's an oath from God. This Jesus, verse 22, makes the guarant- this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The fifth thing that makes Jesus such a great priest, the better priest, is that he saves to the uttermost through intercession. 
I heard someone say, I've, I've heard this saying from a few different places before, but I, I've heard the saying that in our 20s, we're worried about what other people think. And in our 40s, we stop worrying about what other people think. And when we're in our 60s, we realize no one was thinking about us ever. <laughs> But Jesus is thinking about his people. He, in his seat in heaven, is living, it says in verse 25, to make intercession for us. He's thinking about us. He's considering us. This does not mean that in heaven he is somehow trying to placate the Father. Oh, Father, please, you know, go easy on them. No, that was finished at the cross. He satisfied the wrath of of God. But what he is doing is holding up our righteousness before the triune Godhead in order to acquire the aid of Father, Son, and Spirit for our walks here on earth today. He's continually trying to help us in order to, what does it say there in verse 25? Save to the uttermost. Now you may have used that phrase before to describe the power of the gospel in going to the uttermost, to the ends of the earth, to save anyone wherever they're at. But, and, and that is biblically true, but that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that in your life, no matter what you face and go through, the uttermosts of your life, Jesus is there to intercede for you and help you with all that stuff. And you know how life is. You go through different things and you think, okay, I went to the uttermost. And then a few years tick by and a new uttermost comes up. And a new uttermost a few years after that. But the Lord, the Lord, He is there interceding for us to try to help us from His seat in heaven through those uttermost experiences of life. Let's read our last three verses in verse 26 to 28. It says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now pause on that verse right there. Notice that description of Jesus. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. But how do we know Jesus? We know Jesus as one who took our unholiness into his body who took our guilt into his innocence, who took our shame and stains into his body on the cross, who did not separate himself but came and dined with tax collectors and sinners, joined together with us, and did not refuse to come down from heaven but embodied humanity, became one of us uh, here on earth. So Jesus was all of that. He came for us. It says in verse 27, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for those of the people, since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. There's only one sacrifice that's needed, and it's sufficient for every person and all of humanity that would believe by faith in the Lord. For the law, verse 28, appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of an oath, the oath which came later than the law, that's Psalm 110, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What this means for us is this, this last thing I want to show you about Jesus is our best 
high priest or the, the greatest high priest is. Number six, he is perfect forever. There will never be anyone else that we need to turn to. There will never be any other era that we need to receive. Jesus is always in that first and greatest place. In fact, it's almost as if God used the events of wicked humanity to confirm this message. Because after the book of Hebrews was written, the Romans came in to Jerusalem in 70 AD and they violently destroyed the temple. And in destroying the temple, the sacrificial system ceased to even be an option for Jewish Christians. It was like God was using, again, evil humanity to confirm a message that we see in Scripture, that Christ fulfilled that sacrificial system, and we now have a new and great high priest that we, because he was perfected and glorified, went into eternity, we will have him forever. Now look, Jesus, as I wrap this up, Jesus, he wants to work on you in a very personal way an intimate kind of way. If you read about the Old Testament priesthood, it's not really a job a lot of people would want to have. When you read the book of Leviticus, it's more than just a sacrificial system. It was like anytime someone in Israel had like a spot that might be leprosy, something they were worried about, they had to have come and get these inspections and all of that, and the priests were part of it, you know? And when I read those chapters in Leviticus, I just think to myself, like, I am just so glad that is not part of my job, you know? That's just, I don't know, I would not want to do that. It's very personal. It's very private. But you see, Jesus, as our high priest, He looks into our hearts. He sees our stains and blemishes, different things that he wants to work on. And and he, he desires to do what it takes to minister to our lives right where they are at. And so as he's been saying over and over again in this book, draw near to him. Let your heart run to him because he wants to help you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.